Palliative care is the medical subspecialty that treats the symptoms and stresses of serious illness. Over 50 million Americans have been diagnosed with COVID-19 since the pandemic began, and by definition, those who have been hospitalized were seriously ill. Therefore, the skills that palliative care clinicians use every day, support for priority setting, listening, communication, and symptom management for complex needs, are the same skills that have been in high demand in hospitals throughout the U.S. during the pandemic. But what are the lessons learned, and what does this increased awareness mean for hospitals in the future? Welcome to Advancing Health, a podcast from the American Hospital Association. I'm Tom Hetterley with AHA Communications. In this podcast, the AHA and the Center to Advance Palliative Care, or CAPSI, are brought together by the AHA's Living Learning Network. That's a CDC-funded, peer-to-peer community of healthcare professionals dedicated to helping hospitals and health systems recover, rebuild, and reimagine the future of care. The following audio is from a live virtual event held in November 2021 and is the first episode of this two-part series. Hosted by AHA Vice President of Clinical Quality Marie Clary Fishman, the esteemed group of panelists includes CAPC CEO Bryn Bowman, AHA's EVP and COO Michelle Hood, Medical Director of Palliative Services and Associate Professor of Medicine at Virginia Commonwealth University, Dr. Danielle Norica, and Professor and Chair of the Brookdale Department of Geriatrics and Palliative Medicine at Mount Sinai, Dr. R. Sean Morrison. Hello and greetings, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for this really important collaborative between the American Hospital Association and the Center to Advance Palliative Care. We really are so honored that you're here today. I'm Marie Clary Fishman. I'm the Vice President of Clinical Quality at the American Hospital Association. I am a nurse Recently, I calculated it, have been for 38 years. That's pretty hard to imagine. I'm responsible currently for the grants and contracts that we do here at the American Hospital Association, working with our members and for performance improvement. I had lots of different experiences in my career, including working with home care, hospice, and palliative care, private uh, company board. So really, this work is very important to me and very near and dear to my heart. I am also a daughter that's responsible for taking care of or being cared for by my 90-year-old father who had his birthday last week. So we certainly live by many of the principles that are so important as we go through life together. So I would really like to um, start out by giving some time to Michelle and to uh, Bryn to reflect on palliative care during COVID and for Michelle really to reflect on what the AHA's observations are and what some of the key learnings and challenges are that we are working on as we go forward in the future. Michelle? Thank you so much, Marie, and good morning or good afternoon to everyone joining us today. I'm uh, really pleased to be part of this panel and excited to hear from my fellow panelists about their expertise and, and their experiences with palliative care. It's a really important subject that, as Marie said, is also near and dear to my heart, both professionally and and personally. I'm sure that many of you, uh, or probably most of you in the audience, have had 
the experience of helping a loved one through uh, end of life. And, and, and I had my experience starting about four years ago when we recognized uh, that we were dealing with a terminal condition ending in March of uh, 2019 when my father passed away following a, a very long and difficult journey with Alzheimer's disease. My four siblings and, and I recently were discussing that challenge and the whole journey of searching for a diagnosis, um, addressing his multiple care needs, helping our mother through all the emotional and logistical pieces of the experience, and then, you know, that, that long final goodbye. And uh, we certainly agreed that it was really not until the palliative care team became fully engaged with my family's care that we felt comfortable that we had the right experience and expertise uh, surrounding us to help us uh, make uh, good decisions for both my dad and my mom. So what a blessing uh, palliative care was for me personally. Professionally, I've had uh, the honor of serving as a VP, a EVP, a chief operating officer, and a CEO of uh, five different hospitals and health systems across my career, from academic teaching hospitals to national and regional healthcare integrated delivery systems and urban and rural settings. So I've, I kind of have seen seen it all. But in each of these settings, and like Marie, I hate to think about the years, but I just celebrated earlier in 2021 being in this field for 40 years. And what a, you know, what a change I've seen over those 40 years in so many areas. But in each of the settings that I've had the pleasure of working with, and certainly now here at the AHA, I've been actively engaged in, in building and then improving systems of care to address the emotional, physical, behavioral, and spiritual needs of patients with chronic illnesses. And this practice uh, has come such a long way um, over the years, and I, I really look forward to our conversation today to help us look forward as to you know, what's coming next and how do we take advantage of what we've learned uh, during COVID to further advance the continued contributions that this field will make to our, our common vision of the highest quality of care for all at every stage of life. As Marie mentioned, you know, the AHA has had quite a journey through COVID. I did join the second week of March of 2020 and felt like a jump into the deep end of the pool for sure. Had the advantage of having been an AHA member organization for, for all of my career, actually, and, and having just come off serving as one of the board members for the AHA board uh, right before I, uh, at the end of 2019, I finished my term. You know, we have been on a journey for the last 20 months of trying to identify opportunities for taking what we learned during COVID, everything from using every site of care available to us to, to provide care, moving care that had typically been in, in the acute care setting back into the community and the home in many situations. The learnings that we had around consumerism and what our, our patients, even before they become patients. And, you know, I think that this is a remarkable time uh, for us as a field to take uh, advantage of uh, the difficult problem solving that we had to do during the pandemic to reallocate resources uh, to address both acute and chronic needs of our patients in our communities and to use technology in new and different ways. I think we'll touch on many of those issues today as we go through our conversation. But again, I'm so pleased to be part of the panel and, and to be with you all today. So back to you, Marie. 
Thank you, Michelle. And thank you for sharing your personal professional reflections. And uh, I know that so many of these things, as you said, are personal experiences for all of us. And that really brings things home. So Bryn Bowman, can I ask you to share your reflections? You've been part of the CAPSI world for some time. And I know that palliative care is also near and dear to your heart. So would you uh, also like to share with us? Yeah, it is. And thank you, Marie and Michelle. It's an honor to be here today. And I'm just really pleased to be having this conversation. And like you both shared about yourselves, I come at this work because of personal experiences, because of having seen family members have difficult experiences in illness and because of a sense that we can do better for, for people like my grandparents and my aunts and uncles. So I joined CAPSI eight years ago and, and assumed this role Michelle, just about when you did, near the beginning of the pandemic. So we have a, a real sense for timing. But I'm going to spend just a minute explaining who CAPSI is and what we do, and then speak briefly about the, our national observations of what was happening in the world of palliative care during COVID-19. And I know my colleagues, Dr. Morrison and Dr. Marika, will share their experiences from the point of view of a health system and what was happening on the ground. But CAPSI as an organization has the vision that every person living with serious illness receives highest quality person-centered care. So care that reflects patients' unique goals, patients' unique needs, care that addresses not just the physical, but the psychological and spiritual and social sources of suffering that can occur for patients and families in the context of a serious illness. And we think about this work in two ways. And the first is that we provide technical assistance to hospitals and health systems around the country about how to design and launch and grow high-quality palliative care programs. And the second way is that we train clinicians from every specialty in core palliative care skills, so how to manage symptoms, how to talk with patients about their goals of care. And the, the aim of that work really is to integrate palliative care principles and practices into every clinical interaction that a person with serious illness has. Zooming out and thinking about most of the state of play at the beginning of the pandemic, beginning of 2020, it was the case that uh, over 80% of U.S. hospitals had a palliative care program in place. Um, and for larger hospitals, 300 plus beds, was over 95% of hospitals had a palliative care program. The fact is, though, that those programs really vary in size. And so early in the pandemic, there were some hospitals with large teams who were able to rapidly redeploy their palliative care specialists to be when and where they were needed. And for hospitals that had smaller palliative care teams, there were difficult decisions to make about where to apply that, that scarce resource of palliative care specialists. And at CAPSI, we really wanted to understand what was happening on the ground, what were palliative care teams doing. And so we, we issued two surveys to palliative care programs throughout the pandemic, one in May of last year, so in the early months, and one in January and February of this year. And the goal was to understand what were palliative care programs doing to respond to COVID-19 and what was the impact of that work on patients and families and on referring clinicians. The early days of the pandemic were full of just so much uncertainty and so much fear for not just patients and families, but for healthcare workers. And palliative care team members certainly were not immune from that, but palliative care team members do have expertise in exactly this, addressing suffering and helping patients cope when the news is bad, when decisions are difficult, when families are under pressure. 
I think it's that capacity that really enabled palliative care programs to provide a tremendous amount of support over the last year and a half. Again, not just for patients and families, but for colleagues. And when we looked at what programs told us about how they'd been doing that, we learned a, a couple of interesting things. So one is that the large majority of palliative care teams quickly spun up uh, telehealth services that they used in all kinds of creative ways. And I know that, that Drs. Morrison and Narika will talk more about that. Three quarters of palliative care programs told us that they had started new services explicitly focused on emotional support um, for their clinician colleagues. Another three quarters of palliative care programs told us that they had led efforts within their hospitals and health systems to make sure that patients coming into the hospital with COVID had conversations about their goals of care. 60% of palliative care program leaders told us that they had worked with their hospital and health system leadership to help design the crisis response strategy at the onset of the pandemic, understanding what the needs of very vulnerable patients were. And many programs told us that they had expanded their presence in their hospital ICUs and in emergency departments. I think when we look at this, a particularly interesting trend was that by the middle of last year, palliative care programs consult volumes were going up. And we get reports now that those volumes have stayed up, despite the fact that in a lot of areas in the country, COVID numbers have gone down. And I think that speaks to the kind of clinical collaborative relationships that were forged in a crisis during the pandemic and about the value that those referring clinicians found in working with palliative care teams to relieve, relieve patient suffering. So I think that gives us a lot to think about as we emerge into a new phase. You know, what do we take from all of this? What I take is that I think we've seen during the pandemic just how essential palliative care is for patients and families, for clinicians who are trying to support patients with really complex needs, and for organizations that are trying to provide the highest quality care for really vulnerable patients. And acknowledging what you said, Marie, that healthcare organizations are facing a lot of uncertainty and competing priorities and stressors a year and a half into the pandemic. But I'm looking forward to, to this conversation today about how we integrate those lessons about palliative care during the pandemic into care delivery as we come out of this moment. So, Michelle, your thoughts on organizational strategy and palliative care? Sure. So, first of all, you know, when we got into probably the early summer months of 2020, and we recognized that uh, we were not going to come out of this after two weeks to bend the curve or anywhere close to it. You know, we decided as an organization here at AHA that we would put our strategic goals for the year of 2020 on the shelf and concentrate, you know, 24-7 on uh, helping our members respond to the, the many, many challenges that COVID brought. And of course, as uh, Brent so eloquently discussed, the challenges were everything from, uh, you know, keeping people uh, well to the degree that we, that we could before we had a vaccine and encouraging all the public health components of the uh, of community health at that point in time to educating our members and, and problem solving with them around access to PPE and then to testing. And, you know, we can go back and think about that seems like a decade ago that we were dealing with those challenges. But as we went through every phase of COVID, you know, we, we continue to amass lessons learned and, and hopefully that that experience is going to serve us well uh, going forward because we're still in the midst of a public health emergency that, that um, I think we're going to continue to live with for some time. And then, of course, it's opened our eyes to the fact that what's coming next, right, as, as we look uh, around the corner. 
So, uh, you know, public health planning and uh, crisis management uh, all will have a different patina to them as we as we take the lessons learned from from COVID and, and uh, do the planning going forward. It so happens that right now here at the AHA and with our, our members, we are in the final stages of developing a three-year plan that will start on January 1st of 2022. You know, we have not had a, a, a real plan in place since the early days of COVID. So this is really an interesting time for us as we look a little bit back, but a, a lot more looking forward. And you know, the question about how do we feel palliative care fits into the long-term strategy I just came off of a, a, a two-day retreat with our executive committee of our board, and I can tell you that we, we talk about longitudinal care like I've never heard the board talk about before. And, you know, erasing those, those boundaries that come along with, well, that's primary care, and that's acute care, and that's chronic care, and they all should have different approaches. Well, they all have to intersect. We've learned that lesson the hard way. And we also need to intersect with the public health infrastructure with all its flaws, with, you know, with all of the things that we found and the fact that community to community, it's a different situation. So how do we build flexibility into that longitudinal care process that starts in a person's home, in their community, and then takes them full circle back to their community and their home? We identified a number of different clinical areas that through the lens of the pandemic, that we want to strengthen and to scale innovation that's already occurring organically within our field, uh, but to, you know, to bring those best practices home to those organizations that may not be as far along in the journey and showcase uh, what, could, what a difference that can really make. And so when I think about palliative care and the barriers that we've experienced over the last decades, uh, you know, it's not paid for or can be, you know, some commercial, some governmental payers can include a code here or a code there, but it's really like a lot of things in the payment side of the house. It's really disjointed. It's really episodic. And the need to advocate and one of the things that AHA does very well is to, to advocate policy and legislation, but to advocate better payment models that recognize the business proposition behind palliative care. And as clinicians, we oftentimes want to focus on the clinical and the, and the quality of life and the patient experience and the family experience. But we also have to balance that with the, the business proposition that says, yes, we recognize our resources are already stretched within the system of care delivery, but this is a way to have a win-win situation. So I think that we're going to apply much of that. I'll go back to my earlier comment, the, the robust conversation about performance improvement and longitudinal care that occurred just a, a 10 days ago with the board. It represents thousands of beds across the U.S. and, and large healthcare systems was really fantastic. And, and we'll use our strategic plan to, to energize that and to move that forward. Thank you, Michelle. Dr. Narika, you have comments you would like to add to that? Thank you so much. I really appreciated a lot of what, what Michelle just said and, and hope to kind of add a little bit on. But I do want to thank you all, uh, Marie, Michelle, and Bryn at the beginning for identifying your personal journeys, because I think that helps helps us all relate to each other, which is really important right now, I think, for everyone. And I also want to thank all of you for your time spent as a caregiver. One thing that I think the pandemic has done is, is sort of highlight for all of us. We, we knew these gaps were here. We were sort of seeing them. They're really apparent now. 
they're breaking people. And the support that we give for caregivers, we all know, is, is one of the gaps in our system. So thank you all for the caregiving that you have done for your family. And thank you all for the support that you're giving to all of us so that we can take care of our patients and families in the best way possible. So I think I just wanted to, to sort of draw on to a, a few of the things that, that you all have highlighted. And one of them, as we, we look at barriers, is the breadth of your network is always I always love to see how you kind of address every hospital from the smallest rural to the biggest academic center when you are, you know, kind of planning support or planning educational opportunities. And in our system, I've had um, the absolute pleasure to partner with the rural hospitals that are part of VCU's health system. I think one of the things you learn really quickly is that an academic center has much different palliative needs, potentially same sort of patients, but different sort of palliative structure and system needs than a rural hospital does. But there's great opportunities for partnership there. And one of the one of the pieces of my role that I enjoy the most is my ability to partner with our rural hospitals that that don't have providers for palliative um, per se, as Bryn kind of identified that that's sometimes a gap for our rural hospitals. It's hard to, to sort of replicate that model. But you know, if if our team here at the academic hospital, now that, that we're all more comfortable with telemedicine, can partner with nurses who have been specially trained in rural hospitals, there is actually a lot we can accomplish together. And I think both sides get to learn, which is which is a great outcome. You know, I think when everyone looks at, at the model we use here, they say, oh, okay, well, they're learning a lot from you. And I said, well, okay, I hope so. But I've learned a ton from them. And actually, the joke has become that sometimes we do pilot projects down at our rural hospital because they get things done faster than we do here. <laughs> so Erin can turn around a project in a few weeks or a month, and I'll be here until the end of forever sometimes getting all the sign-offs and all the silos and everyone else to sort of to sort of be able to be on the same page. So I think those partnerships help us all to learn. And um, and really, for those of us who practice in big academic centers where, you know, there are colleagues of yours that you have never met and other subspecialties, no matter how long you've been here, the, the value of community is really pronounced in rural areas. And I think it's a great reminder to all of us um, how, how much of a strength that is. Another piece that I'm really glad you've all mentioned a few times, and it, it's something that's becoming near and dear to my heart, um, is telemedicine. And I say this, and some of y'all on the line are going to want to throw something at me, which is fine. The, the great part about, you know, doing everything on screens is you can throw stuff at me, and it's okay. We're all fine. You got some stress out, and I'm still okay. Um, but as we're all very tired, and I know we are all very tired, and when I say, hey, we get this great opportunity to, to be flexible, everybody's like, take your flexible, and, and I get that. I absolutely get that. But you imagine a world now, because we've done so many things differently, where, you know, Michelle, I was thrilled to hear of kind of how do you really practice it. Our hospitals focus on practicing longitudinally because it's actually what's best for the hospital and the entire system attached to it. And what a great opportunity to use telemedicine and integrate it, not in a haphazard way, not in a we have to do this so we're just going to get it done way that we all did to get through the pandemic, but in a really thoughtful way that targets the needs of our patients and families and system. And I think, you know, I'm really looking forward. I know Bryn and others at CAPSI are, are, you know, ahead of the curve and trying to figure out how we're going to help everyone put together programs that make sense in that regard. 
there's a lot of operations and other pieces you have to think about when you build those models, and it very much depends on what the reimbursement is. So again, thank you, Michelle, for your advocacy and everyone at the AHA, because we are going to need that. This makes sense for patients and families. It makes a whole lot of sense. So what we need to do then is with that support, figure out how we can integrate it most seamlessly for patients and families. Sometimes they need that in-person visit. This is palliative. But sometimes we can get to them in other ways and partner with other folks for that. And taking those opportunities is going to be, I think, a great step forward for our field. And then I just wanted to highlight one one last thing. I think, you know, when we refer to the crisis standards of care piece, which I participated in here, like many others at other institutions, when you start learning, because I actually, I was in the military many years ago, and they their take on crisis standards of care is, of course, a little different. But I didn't know as much about the concept as I do now. And I think sitting down with the chair of ethics here and sort of starting to, to learn. And you see this common theme of, we need this basis of trust to found this all on. And he and I sort of looked at each other and said, uh-oh, <laughs> we have some barriers here. We are very blessed to have a community of patients from uh, many different backgrounds here in Richmond, some of whom families have been here for generations. And we have some trust issues for some very good reasons in the medical and legal systems here. And I think it sort of highlighted for us is, okay, it shouldn't have taken this to get us to sit down and sort of say, this is really important and we need to make this part of the plan going forward. But now that we have, you sort of, you sort of see in your head all of those serious illness conversations where you think, well, that didn't go the way we wanted it to. And then when you trace it back, you sort of are back at this system that was kind of there that we, we didn't take a part enough or maybe we didn't understand enough. So I think one of the things that, you know, sort of supported our learning here is how are we, once we have energy again, how are we going to focus on efforts on how to reimagine these structures more equitably? How are we going to sort of keep in mind that many of our patients who come from disadvantaged backgrounds, they have a wealth of barriers to overcome before we even start talking about their chemotherapy or their onotropes or whatever else we're doing for, for their therapy and the, the bonds that we don't have with their community and the misunderstandings that occur about their backgrounds. So I think that's another piece. It, it, obviously, it's not a small barrier, right? I get it. But I think I'm looking forward to working. I know everyone on this line and Bryn, you know, at Capsi, I had a chance to talk to Britt a little bit before about kind of how to how to imagine how we can do this better. And I'm really looking forward to that phase of, of palliative care. As we look at all the advocates that there are in medicine, those of us in palliative are, are here to kind of make sure that spotlight stays focused on the patients who are seriously ill, who are a vulnerable population as it is. And I'm really looking forward to working with everyone on how we can better focus on the vulnerable of the vulnerable. Well, thank you, Dr. Narik. I really appreciate those comments, Michelle. Thank you. I have so many related comments that I'd love to make, but I know we only have till I think one o'clock today and uh, we could be here forever if I keep going. So I would like to, though, just, you know, reflect on the positive focus. I think longitudinal care is a, is a great concept and I love the fact that we're bringing that forward. Brynn, I see a lot of uh, conversations in our future, so that's always a good thing. <laughs> And then I think the uh, the one last thing I comment I would make, I did work at the Illinois Hospital Association prior to coming here and spent a good deal of time in rural Illinois. And uh, Dr. Narika, to your point, one of the things that I heard frequently around hospice and palliative care and, and working with universities and academics um, was that the community didn't necessarily see the patients come back. 
And so I think some of the, the way we're rethinking uh, through telemedicine, telehealth, I think really could get to that trust issue, which is what it really was. So I'm really excited to hear the comments. Thank you for listening to part one of this conversation on the impact of COVID-19 on palliative care in hospitals and health systems. Be sure to stream or download part two next week, which will feature more behind the scenes stories from this panel of experts, as well as recommendations for implementing successful palliative care practices across all areas of healthcare. The views and opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the CDC. Involvement of the CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved.